0: You're listening to the ASN Kidney News Podcast. Eugene Rich, MD, is Senior Fellow at Mathematica Policy Research, where he directs the Center on Healthcare Effectiveness. He has dedicated his career to comparative effectiveness research and the healthcare workforce. And he has worked on the House Ways and Means Committee to expand federal support of comparative effectiveness research. In this episode, Mr. Rich and ASN Counselor Ronald Falk Discuss Comparative Effectiveness Research, also known as CER.
1: Hello, this is Ronald Falk for the American Society of Nephrology, and with me today is Dr. Gene Rich, who is a senior fellow at the Mathematica Policy Research, uh, where he directs the Center on Healthcare Effectiveness. He remains a clinical professor of medicine at Creighton University. Gene Rich, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You
1: have dedicated your remarkable career to thinking and learning about comparative effectiveness research and the healthcare workforce. Both of these issues are now at the top of the health policy agenda. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into what is now known as CER?
2: Yeah, well, I've always been interested in physician decision-making and recognized as a medicine resident and chief resident that while physicians really wanted to do the right thing for their patients, often when one went back and reviewed what happened, some of the decisions weren't so evidence-based and perhaps, in retrospect, weren't really optimal. And I was curious about why that was, because I was convinced that the physician's really wanted to do the right thing and really wanted to recommend the best option for their patients, but it didn't always happen. We put a lot of effort into teaching physicians some new fact, and that might change their behavior for a little while, but then if you'd left them alone, they would evolve back to their old practice, and I got very curious about why that was. So that led me to becoming very interested in the other influences on physician decision-making, the practice environment incentives and all of the issues that have become recognized to be important now in the comparative effectiveness research debate.
1: Why then do you think that the whole field of comparative effectiveness research has taken off? It's become almost a mantra right now in uh, Washington that this uh, kind of research is really going to guide where healthcare is going to go. How did it get that way? How did this type of research and this kind of thinking, which, quite frankly, when you were at the University of Minnesota, wasn't even a well-organized thought. How did it get to where it is at the present time?
2: Right. Well, I think there are a couple of different perspectives that came together. One was the ongoing debate over variations in clinical practice, variations in physician practice, and why that was happening. So sort of a recognition that the different different communities have different rates of utilization of different services, different kinds of practice organizations or sometimes different um types of clinicians have different approaches to the same kinds of problems and uh, so a group of policymakers were very curious about that and uh and what was driving that. Another important stream of evidence was the recognition that a lot of highly effective services aren't consistently delivered. And there a lot of curiosity about how to improve that, which led to the whole debate over pay for performance that I'm sure your listeners are quite familiar with, a big topic over the last over the last decade. The other aspect I think that brought this to the fore was the discussion over how to involve consumers in decision-making and have them have some skin in the game in terms of expensive healthcare decisions the whole debate over consumer-directed health plans or consumer-directed health insurance, and a recognition that if you're really going to have consumers be responsible for some of the healthcare spending on their behalf, they really need to have better evidence of what would work best for them. So these issues around variations in practice, these issues around how to pay for performance, uh, how to pay for performance, and these issues around how to engage consumers all seem to suggest we needed better evidence.
1: So, nephrology, of course, is in and, in fact, first out of the block with pay for performance and quality measures pertaining to our end-stage kidney disease programs. Right. Where is the interaction between comparative efficacy research and enough evidence derived from those studies that would form the basis of pay for performance. In other words, when does one determine that there is enough data? When is there enough data available to really spawn a pay for performance measure with with a certainty that that was the measure to to study?
2: Well, I would say that's actually still a subject of considerable debate. And as I'm Sure you're aware there are many performance metrics that have been developed over the last decade that some clinical epidemiologists would argue were not terribly evidence based, or they were performance standards that well they they might certainly be a good performance measure for a highly selected subgroup of patients, patients represented, for example, of the people enrolled in the trials <laughs> relevant to those performance metrics. But that they didn't necessarily. Some of those performance metrics might not generalize well to other kinds of patients, those with multiple chronic conditions, or those who were who were older than people represented in the studies. So a lot of debate over these performance measures already, and where uh, what role evidence should play. Of course, the, the current process for developing performance metrics. Includes evidence, uh, but it includes a lot of a variety of other factors as well. Of course, there's got to be feasibility uh, that it's not going to cost a fortune to actually collect the measure. The measure has to be reasonably reliable and valid. The measure has to be something that the clinician would acknowledge was something that they might have been able to control or deliver, something that isn't that's at least partially under their control. And of course, the measure has to be something that isn't subject to gaming, such that an organization that was comfortable with fraudulent behavior would appear to perform well and of course uh, was not so there are a lot of considerations in taking evidence and turning into a performance measure and then finally there's sort of the acceptability to the professional community as you know you know the national quality forum you know among other organizations has been very involved in working with the the medical community to develop these performance measures and i think I think one of the ideas about comparative effectiveness research in the last few years, however, has been if we can generate better evidence and better clarity about what was good evidence and what wasn't, we could address some of the concerns that have been voiced about performance metrics in the past so that we can make sure that, you know, that everyone agrees what the quality of evidence is and what the applicability of the measure is to certain patient populations.
1: The, the real question will be, at what point is there really enough evidence with respect to uh, quality of care, longevity, and some hard outcomes, whether those pay-for-performance measures really pass the muster of the kind of research that, that you have promoted?
2: Indeed, and in fact, there's been a recognition that in in addition to comparing, say, one treatment to another, which is sort of what we classically, I think, have thought about in terms of comparative effectiveness research, one drug versus another or a drug versus a surgical approach, there's a recognition that there are lots of places where comparing one approach to healthcare delivery might be an important comparative effectiveness research question.
1: Let me turn our thoughts in in our last moments here to thinking about clinical guidelines. In the kidney world, there has been a substantial effort to create clinical guidelines that would work in the United States and uh, pertain to patients of similar conditions around the world. Where do you see these clinical guidelines going?
2: Guidelines, of course, have a a very close relationship to the topic we were discussing earlier, pay for performance and performance measures. And like performance measures, some elements of guidelines are based on very strong evidence, and some elements of guidelines, you know, are not so evidence-based. In fact, there's a a study published in JAMA a couple of years ago that looked at some of the most common cardiac conditions and looked at the the American Heart Association American Cardiac College of Cardiology guidelines for some of these most important conditions and the quality of the evidence that underlay those those guidelines, those specific recommendations. And uh, what the study reported was that most of the recommendations in the guidelines were not evidence-based. I think the most common source of evidence for the guidelines was expert opinion and that that situation hadn't really changed over the last uh, five years. That is, they looked at guidelines five or six years earlier and current guidelines, and the quality of evidence was still not terribly high. So I think there's a recognition that um, for a wide variety of reasons, it would be good to have guidelines that were based on the best evidence possible. And so I I think one aspect of comparative effectiveness research is to to address that. There's another aspect of comparative effectiveness research though that may also have implication for, for guidelines and, and also implications for the pay for performance discussion we were having earlier. And that is that pay-for-performance, you can develop a metric where you can say, well, this particular service or this particular procedure was technically correctly performed, done according to the the guideline, filled out all the check boxes, you know, the patient was off the ventilator if it's an operative procedure in, in the right amount of time. So we've checked off all the boxes, we performed it correctly, but it's conceivable that the service was not even indicated to begin with. And that some of the paper performance measures may be rewarding things getting done, not necessarily the right things getting done. I'm hopeful that if we can move in the direction of really rewarding and encouraging patient-centered evidence-based practice and providing physicians and patients with the information that they need, that we may actually be able to de-emphasize guidelines, that we, you know, we can really emphasize them when there's really strong evidence and when they're really easy to apply, and otherwise, we can just do what I think we wanted to do in internal medicine for decades, which is to really bring evidence to the bedside and involve our patients in that conversation.
1: Of course, that's the goal that all of us would love to see in the near future rather than the long term. Dr. Rich, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology.
0: This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice.